0: Heavenly Father, that last song, Lord, said, you are my everything. And I will adore you. And the greatest need of our souls right now as we open your word is to feel that reality. That there's nothing in this world, nothing... More glorious, more beautiful. There's nothing more transcendent. There's, there's nothing more necessary for our souls right now in this moment than to encounter our everything in you and to respond with unfettered adoration. And so, my prayer for me and for my friends today is that you would do that, Father God, that you would move in such a way by the power of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus in the scriptures. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and open them to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth 1, verse 1. Today we are actually going to cover, despite what I just said, the final verses of the book of Ruth, um, and we will complete our journey uh, through this book. And, and my prayer that is really that over the last two Two and a half months that you guys have been blessed by this. It has been a blessing to me to go through this book. Um, I've seen more in this book than I originally bargained for when we first started off on our journey, and uh, for that I'm exceedingly uh, grateful. Uh, while I was reflecting on this last section over the course of this week, I, I recognized that it would be a disservice to begin uh, going through this last few verses of the book of Ruth without returning to the very beginning of the book. It's, it's really impossible to understand the magnitude and the meaning of the last section of the book without feeling the weight that the front of the book has. And so I want to just take a few minutes and revisit that beginning so that we can properly grapple with and understand the ending of this story. So let's look at Ruth 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses here. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite women, or wives, the name of one was Orpha, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is where, if you recall, about two months or so ago, we began our story, and it is really at one of the darkest points in the history of the people of Israel. It's referred to here as in the days when the judges ruled. And uh, this is a time and setting that really poses the backdrop, the context for our journey through the book of Ruth when Judges were the ones who ruled the people of Israel. And if you remember when we first started, there's a key verse in the book of Judges that helps us understand and helps us uh, deal with and engage uh, the entire book of Judges 21, or actually Judges, and it is Judges 21 verse 25. And so let me read this passage here. This is a, a really summary of the book of Judges. It says in Judges 21-25, the last verse in that book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the people of Israel were in rebellion against God. They were rebelling against God. This is what it means to do what is right in your own eyes. It is a denial, really, of, of God's right to determine the difference between good and evil, and that denial comes in the form of simply making the judgment for ourselves. Whatever we desire seems right. And so without a king in place, there was no voice, there was no law there that stood in the way that was being vocalized. There was a law, but there wasn't one being vocalized in such a way by a king so that it would be honored. There was no king, and so it was simply ignored. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, And for that, if you were to read the book of Judges, you would see that the people of God were ravaged and destroyed over and over and over again because of their repeated sin. And that's what's going on here at the beginning of the book of Ruth during the time of the Judges. And the reason this is relevant for the story of Ruth is because right at the start of this book, we are confronted with the reality of death. We are confronted with this reality that we will all die. Three people die in the first five verses of this book. Three, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, they all die. And the only reason that death exists in this world for men, the only reason that it exists, that people die, is because of them doing what is right in their own eyes. Sin is the root, it is the seed that brings on death. And what this means for us is that this is a universal problem. Everyone dies. Everyone in human history deals with this reality that's coming forward to them because everyone in human history sins. This isn't just an, an issue about Israel not having a king. This is an issue that touches our, our lives. There are, in the book of Ruth, eternal implications connected to this story because everyone deals with what they're dealing with in the book of Ruth. We all sin, and that means we all are headed towards the consequences of sin, which is death. So it's not an understatement to say that there are infinitely important truths in the book of Ruth, infinitely important, because it engages death, an event that will, for every single person in this room, Carry them into eternity. So it's huge. The stakes are high in this book. We need to get it right, and that's what we witness. We witness this carrying into eternity, this death, right at the beginning of the book of Ruth. Um, so by the end of verse five, Naomi, this woman who had a full family when she left Bethlehem and is now going into to Moab, she loses everyone. Her family is dismantled. Through death, the, the cost, the wage of sin, and what I want to do really quickly—we did this the first week—is I just we we need to feel that for a second. We need to we need to try, in as much as we can, to understand what the magnitude of her loss was. Your imagine your entire family is gone, and you're the only one left. That's what Naomi's going through here. Her family is gone, and there is a kind of finality to that as she's in the the, the country of Moab that we need to grapple with because it is a finality that we need to recognize as part of our lives. And for Naomi, because it's her whole family, it is nothing short of catastrophic. And so she returns with Ruth, to Bethlehem. Ruth is only the only one by her side. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. She's not related to Ruth outside of the fact that Ruth was unfortunate enough to marry her son before he died. And so we see this exchange as they're going into the town of Bethlehem in verse 19 of chapter 1, which is really the author's way of kind of reminding us of the magnitude of the loss that Naomi is facing. So, the t- so I'm going to read this. It starts in verse 19 through 21. It says this, So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is that Naomi? Is this Naomi? And she, Naomi, said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So, picture this scene. These, these two women, Ruth and Naomi, are coming into Bethlehem, and the city is coming alive with questions about what's going on here. The women of Bethlehem who have known Naomi before she came, before she left for Moab, they know her. She lived in the city with them, but they don't see with her Elimelech, her husband. They don't see Malon and Kilion, her two sons. Naomi's family isn't there, and so what they do is they, they, they may ask, where are they? You know, where are these people? In this question, it says, is this Naomi? You can tell they they immediately shift to, could this possibly be Naomi? Is it someone else? Is it someone else that's here? Because it's impossible for us to imagine Naomi without Elimelech, without her sons. And it seems somehow more viable in their minds that this is somebody else, that they've just simply mistaken for Naomi. But that's not the case. Either way, Naomi corrects them and says, Don't call me Naomi, which means in Hebrew, pleasant. But call me Mara, which means bitter. And she tells them why they should call her this. It's because the Lord, Yahweh, her God, has dealt very bitterly with her. She went away full, and God has brought her back to Bethlehem empty. Her family is gone. And she says, here's the reason she's come back empty. She she summarizes why she's empty. She says, the Lord has testified against me and has brought calamity upon me. And what we said on the first Sunday is that Naomi is both right and wrong in her statement. She's both correct in her theology and she's wrong in her theology as well. God is certainly sovereign over all things, including whether or not her husband and sons live. He can control that. He could stop that from happening. So he's sovereign. But what she doesn't realize is that his testimony isn't against her, but it will ultimately be for her good. His testimony will ultimately serve for her own good. There is hope for Naomi beyond the horizon, She just can't see it because she is deep in the throes of pain with the loss that she's experienced. And so when naming the first message in this series, we named it pain and providence because that's exactly what the first chapter is about. The first chapter is filled with an excruciating pain in this family being brought really to, to only one person, to nothing for Naomi. And yet we also see in there a clear understanding of the providence of God And as we read the book of Ruth, we recognize that it's providence. These events aren't meaningless. Her pain is not meaningless. It has a purpose, and that purpose is the story of the book of Ruth. It's it's the whole story of this book. And so as we go to this last message, today's message, we're entitling it Rest and Resurrection. Rest and Resurrection. And this isn't uh, an attempt to be clever or anything like that. As we get to the end, you'll see that Rest and resurrection is exactly where this book lands, is where it ends. The questions which arise in chapter 1 about where God is and about what he's doing in and through this pain are resolved in that last section, and they are resolved through rest and resurrection. So in this story, if you remember, after this event, they come back into Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi. Ruth ends up going out and gleaning in the fields. And when she goes out to work in the fields to glean, she encounters a man named Boaz. Boaz is a very kind man. What she doesn't realize at this point is that Boaz is actually related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And that means, though Ruth doesn't know this, that Boaz could be a redeemer. He could be the person who saves them from poverty, and from really the end of their family's line. And so we see as the story goes on, Boaz becomes very fond of Ruth, really from the very beginning, and he provides for both Ruth and Naomi in terms of wheat, in terms of barley. Um, And seeing this, Naomi recognizes Boaz is a redeemer. That means he could redeem Ruth. He could marry Ruth and take her as his wife and supply an heir for Ruth. She doesn't need to be childless. The family doesn't need to end in this moment. And so Naomi tells Ruth, I want to seek rest for you. I want to seek your rest, which is in the form of marriage. If you remember from chapter one, when Ruth and Orpah, Naomi's two daughters-in-law, are arguing with her about whether or not they should say or go, And Naomi's telling them, listen, you do not want to stay with me. I have nothing to offer you. She tells them, Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah, leave me and seek rest in the house of your husband. Leave me and seek the rest that you need in the house of your husband. And so at this point in human history, a woman who is a widow or who has no husband is in danger of being exploited, physically harmed or worse. And worst, in this case, would be a life of poverty, possibly even slavery, but a life that certainly does not include rest. And so to have a husband at this point in history is to have provision, to have security, and to ultimately have rest. And so Naomi tells Ruth in chapter 3, I want to seek your rest. You've done so much for me, Ruth. I want to seek your rest. And she tells her, approach Boaz, the Redeemer, about marriage, about redeeming her and securing her and providing her ultimately with rest. So Ruth does this. And Boaz, who loves Ruth, who cares about Ruth, who's been fighting for Ruth this entire time by giving her from his fields, he agrees to redeem her. It was a little bit of a windy path, but he ends up redeeming her. And as we come to this final closing section of the book of Ruth, we see the fulfillment and the culmination of that redemption. So chapter 4, if you turn to that, we're going to read verses 13 through 17, and this is really the end of the book. This is a fulfillment of the rest. So it says this, So Boaz, in his act of redemption, took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women, same women from chapter 1, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, last week, we read through the genealogy at the very end of this book. We won't focus on it today, verses 18 through 22. It really connected better with the the text earlier. Um, The ending of this story really takes place in verse 13 through 17. And so this is what we're going to focus on. This is the conclusion to the story of Ruth. Boaz redeems Ruth. He marries Ruth. And so after four chapters harrowing chapters where things did seem dark at certain points, Ruth finally has rest. She finally has found rest in the embrace of her husband, and she is now part of his house. And so right here, we see the significance of Ruth finally getting rest. What's interesting about this rest is is actually what it's connected to. It says that Boaz marries Ruth and then God gives her conception. God gives her conception. She can't have a baby before this event. We talked a little bit about this before. She was with Malan for 10 years. And there was no child. God grants her conception. And the gift from God is this son named Obed. They call him Obed. And we are told that this son is the father of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, is the father of David, who will be king over Israel. So what this means is that this dark, tragic line that we just read at the end of the book of Judges about there not being a king in Israel and about everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is about to come to an end. God, through this act of redemption on Boaz's part, will give Israel a king. David. That's what this redemption leads to. There will be a voice of a king to stay the lawlessness and sin of the people of Israel, which was unchecked during the time of the judges. And so there is a greater rest at stake in Ruth's redemption than simply hers. Hers is there, and that's glorious. There is a greater rest here than simply Ruth's redemption. And we see this in 1 Chronicles 22. This is King David talking to his leaders. Listen to what he says. Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. So the word peace here in the Hebrew is nuach. And nuach means literally rest. This is literally translated that there, there is rest now for the people of God. There is rest from the violence and death that were the repercussions of their sin. All of Israel will have peace and rest because of the hand of this king and that king exists because of the redemption that takes place in the book of Ruth. Think about that it's through her future heir so it's not simply Ruth's rest that the book is focused on it is the rest that David brings god brings through david and there's more to this passage than just rest though if we look closely there's something else here that is intriguing look what happens in Ruth 4:14 4, when the author's attention shifts away from Ruth back to Naomi it's interesting if you read through the book of of Ruth. It's kind of interesting. It should be called the book of Naomi in a lot of ways. Ruth is a hero in the story. She's amazing in the story. And Naomi is really a victim of all that's going on here. But the book starts out with Naomi, and the book ends with Naomi. And there's a lot of Naomi in between. It's really about her story, about her grappling with what's going on in this story. If you look at Ruth 4.14, we're going to see this. Blessed be the Lord, Who has not left you, Naomi, this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So these women, the same women in the first chapter of the book, who were saying, Is this Naomi? Where's your family? Is this possibly Naomi? They're reeling from the loss that she's experienced here just by recognizing that she doesn't have her family with her. Now they're talking to Naomi about the birth of Ruth's son. And they're blessing God because of what he has clearly provided to Naomi. He's given her an heir. Her family is not gone. There is an heir. Her son, Ruth's husband, Malon, before uh, they came back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem had died. And Boaz, in his redemption of Ruth, is providing now a replacement for the heir that Malon should have given Ruth. And these women who are now seeing this child be born to, to Ruth are seeing an heir now being provided for Naomi. And they're saying that God hasn't left Naomi without a redeemer, that his name will be renowned in Israel. In other words, Naomi has experienced some of Ruth's redemption in the birth of this child. And in verse 17, they even go so far as to, to name the, the baby Obed, and they say, this is a son that's been born to Naomi. It's not really Naomi's child, but they see the redemption that this son brings to Naomi, and it's as though this son was Naomi's child. But the thing that's very interesting about this section is what is said in verse 15. When they refer to the Redeemer in verse 14 and 15, they're not talking about Boaz. Boaz is not the Redeemer at the end of the book. They're talking about the child himself. Look at verse 15 again. It says, he, they're talking about the Redeemer from verse 14, which we just read. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, Naomi. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him, to the Redeemer. So so the Redeemer in verse 14, who is called a restorer of life, who is called a nourisher of her old age, this Redeemer is the son that is born to Ruth. It says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him, to the Redeemer. And for us, what this means is that this other redemption that is at work isn't simply about a a woman's hand in marriage where she's going to be in the house of her husband she's going to have rest here it isn't just about Ruth being redeemed it is about the redeemer that Naomi has and this redeemer according to this text says he will be a restorer of life why use that language restorer of life why would Naomi's alive Why use this language to describe what needed to happen through the Redeemer for Naomi? Well, the reason why is because for Naomi, she was as good as dead when her husband and her sons died. She was as good as dead. In her eyes, it was akin to death, which is why in chapter 1, if you recall, when she's telling her daughters-in-law to go, when she's saying, you need to go from me, she tells them that they have dealt kindly with the dead and her. The dead and her. And when she first hears of Boaz's kindness to Ruth in the field, she remarks that God apparently hasn't forsaken the living and the dead. This is before any thought of redemption would even occur. Naomi is so connected with her, her husband and her sons that when they die, she sees it as though she has died. Because when she dies, when she physically dies, her family ends. There's no memory of them. There's no lineage. There's no one to carry on their name. It is over unless someone can restore her life unless that can happen here somehow, it is over. And that restoration that needs to happen, that restoration that she needs so clearly in this text is the heir, the son. And that's why when this son comes, when this son is born, he does really give her life. He nourishes her, despite her old age and despite not being able to have a child of her own, he is the redeemer for Naomi. And there is a kind of with Naomi, resurrection. There's a kind of being raised from death to life that we're witnessing here for Naomi. There's a kind of of restoration that's happening for her that is bringing her out of the shadow of death and the futility of her family being over when she goes and bringing her all the way into life. Because in chapter one, her line was as good as dead. There would be no Naomi. There would be no story, no relevancy to her. But in chapter four, everything has changed. And yet, we all know that Naomi eventually dies. She will die, just like her husband's, or just like her husband, just like her sons. This isn't a real resurrection to eternal life. This is merely a restoring of what she lost when her husband and her sons died. Naomi is going to die one day. So is Boaz. And so is Ruth. Because Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And they are sinners. They've sinned against God. They cannot escape the penalty of death. Everyone must face this fact. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed to man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So we, all of us, have an appointment. Every human being has an appointment. We're going to keep an appointment, all of us. And that appointment is called death. This is why the book of Ruth is so significant to us. We need to understand this book because this book deals with something we're all going to have to face. It speaks about death and then it talks about the restoration of life. And if I, I can be real with you, there is nothing more urgent in the world for us to understand and know than what death will mean for us. There isn't anything more important because death is going to mean something for me. When I die it's going to mean something. Something's going to happen. And death is going to mean something for all of you. And and everyone. And King David, Ruth's great-grandson knew this. He grappled with this. You read the Psalms, this is a constant thing that he grappled with. And one of the reasons we know that he grappled with in the eternal implications of what it means to be a soul that will live forever but have death as an appointment that you're going to keep is why he wrote the, 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 the book or the chapter, Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is his grappling with this reality. I'm going to read the last three verses of this text so we can get an understanding of what Ruth's great-grandson, the king, thought about this and what he desired despite this appointment. Verses 9-11 through 11 of Psalm 16 says this, My heart is glad, and my whole being rejo- rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 deals with death. David begins this song actually with four words. Preserve me, O God. That's his first four words. Have you ever started a prayer with preserve me, O God? David started his prayers with that. He knew the reality of death and he didn't want to die. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to face that appointment. And the conclusion at the end of this psalm is that he would not ultimately face it, that he would not have to face it. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying at the beginning of the psalm, don't let me die, preserve me, O God. And at the end of it, though he was a sinner, though he knew it, though he knew he did not deserve the path of life, and that he did what was right in his own eyes and therefore deserved the wages of his sin, though all of those things are true about him, he says, you will not abandon my soul. You will not let me see corruption. And so that's the question we have, is how could he walk away with that understanding? despite the appointment he knows he has to keep. An appointment that he deserves. He wants the path of life. He should have the path of death. And uh, if we read the New Testament, the path of death is defined very clearly throughout it. Revelation 14, 11 says this of the path of death. It says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. That's a heavy verse, and it says they have no rest. The path of death, opposite of the path of life, is no rest forever. The opposite of eternal rest is not eternal activity. It is eternal torment, according to this text. It's never getting rest in the end. Naomi sought that Ruth would have the rest of, of being in the embrace of her husband. Yet what Ruth and Naomi actually need the most isn't that rest. They need the rest that's found in God. They need the path of life. They need the ultimate rest that David is pursuing here of being in the presence of God forever. What David refers to and defines as a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's, that's how David defined true rest. And David in Psalm 16 says he has this rest. You're not going to abandon my soul. I know it. You're not going to let my flesh see corruption. And so how can David say that? How does it, why does he have that audacity? Because we know David dies. We know that he was buried. We know that he's not around. He doesn't escape death. He has the same fate as every other human being on the planet. So what is the deal? Is he lying? Is he just confused? Is he delusional? Or was this just a really strong hope that he had, was never realized? Well, Peter in Acts 2 actually explains to us exactly what David meant when he wrote Psalm 16. This is Peter, Acts 2, 29 through 32. nor did his, the Christ's flesh, see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Peter says. God raised Jesus Christ, David's descendant. He he was raised from death to life. His life was fully restored. He was not abandoned to Hades. God did not allow one inch of corruption to come upon him. This right here is resurrection. This is, this is a redeemer who truly restores life. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't a myth. This isn't a cute, hopeful story. This is reality. This happened in human history. They killed him. They killed Jesus and buried him. He was dead. And then beyond all expectations of even his closest friends, he stopped being dead and rose from the grave, his life fully restored. So we need to get this. We need to understand the connection. What does this mean? What does this resurrection mean? There is no Christian life without a hope and a confidence in the resurrection. There is none. Jesus Christ rising from the dead guarantees that one day, Psalm 16 will be true for David, and one day for those who have faith in Christ, it will be true for us. Without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing. It is nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:9 that if our hope is in this life alone, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That's how important this event is. The resurrection is what connects all of this together and makes it meaningful. And so the restoration of life that we see Ruth providing Naomi with a redeemer is just a glimpse of the restoration of life that we will all participate in with David because of Jesus Christ, his descendant, who God raised from the dead. And so what I want to do is I want to look really quickly again at, as we close, at at Ruth 4.15, And I wanna read this again with that lens, with that understanding. It says this, Ruth 4.15, he, the Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So let's think through this verse. There's meaning here that we're not tapping into yet on the surface. There's something else to see here. The Redeemer, Naomi's grandson, is the restorer of life in this text. He is here because of Ruth. You see that? The reason that the Redeemer is here is because of Ruth. It says, he shall be to you a restorer of life for, for is the connecting word, your daughter who loves you. Ruth loves Naomi, who is worth more to you than seven sons has given birth to him, this redeemer. So when we first started out in this sermon series, I recognized, not to the magnitude that it would come here at the end of this series, that that there was an important connection between the sovereignty of God and the sacrifice of Ruth. And so we called it of sovereignty and sacrifice. And there's a reason for that. God's Sovereignty is throughout this book. I mean, we've seen it every step of the way. Of all the fields that Ruth could glean in, she gleans in Boaz's field. Boaz is related to Elimelech. He's a redeemer. That's not coincidence. And he's not indifferent to her, despite the age difference. He loves her. He cares for her. He wants to marry her. And then just even today, we saw that despite the fact that Ruth couldn't conceive, God steps into the picture and says, No. That's not the end of your story. Healed. And she's able to have this son. (laughs) And so God's sovereignty is throughout this entire book, even in the dark times, even in the deepest valleys, we know from the story that it's all part of God's plan, that he used all of the brokenness to bring about this redemption. Not just to bring the people of, of Israel, a king in David, an ultimate rest through him, but to bring a a more ultimate rest in the final redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would restore life to the world. But notice with me that in Ruth 4.15, the connection here is that Ruth has love for Naomi. And her love is proven sacrificially such that to Naomi, Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Why say that? Why, why, Why bring that up? She's saying here, the, these women are saying to Naomi, they're, they're, they're affirming with her that Ruth is priceless to Naomi. She is incomparably priceless. She is without equal. The number seven is a symbol. It's, it's simply saying that there is no amount of sons that she could have had that would have been worth more or even come close to comparing to Ruth. As far as Naomi is concerned, Ruth is invaluable. She's incomparable. And so in, light of, in the light of Ruth's sacrificial love, where in chapter one, we saw her say to Naomi, wherever you go, Naomi, I'm going. Wherever you stay, Naomi, I'm going to say, I will not leave you. When you die, Naomi, she says, I will be buried next to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to stay, And now the result of that sacrificial love is that Naomi sees something she could not see at that time. She had two sons who she loved. Everything was resting on them. And then she lost them and thought it was over. And yet in the sacrifice of Ruth, in this massive sacrifice of giving her life over to help Naomi, she sees not only does Ruth secure for both of them rest, and secure for both of them a kind of restoration of life. But she now sees something that she missed. Ruth's value is incomparable. It is worth more than any sons that she could have. And it, it was only seen, she could only see it through this act of redemption. Only through the redemption of Ruth's sacrificial love is what caused Naomi to see it and to know the worth of Ruth. The reason this is critical, not just for the characters in the story, is that we need to know Naomi's experience. We need to know what she experienced. It doesn't just belong to her. It belongs to you and it belongs to me. What Naomi experienced when she saw the sacrificial love of Ruth and realized that she was incredibly more worth than, worthy than any sons that she could have, that experience is for you and I. Because it is only through the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that we can possibly see his infinite worth. Without the cross, we would be blind to the worth of Jesus forever. We would be blind forever. We would never see it. Without the cross, there is no hope for us to see his worth because we're just like the Israelites. We're just like them. We do whatever is right in our own eyes. We are addicted to these broken desires to pursue hollow joy. And we would forever miss the worth and value of Jesus Christ. But the cross doesn't let us do that. The cross refuses to allow us to miss it. Listen to 1 John 4 for a second. Could not be any clearer, I think. He says this, 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The path of life that David spoke of in Psalm 16 can only be found in the cross of Christ. That's the only place we can find it. It is the sacrifice of Christ. And when we see it, when we see it for what it really is, what he did on that cross, it is almost as though the love of God rushes toward us like a tidal wave and crashes into our soul with the force of eternity. And we see him as infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, that's what it says here. In this, he says, the love of God was made manifest. It was shown, it was displayed, it was communicated to us. God showed it to us by sending his only son into the world that we might live through him, that we might live. So the response of your soul to the cross of Christ is the recognition of his infinite worth, the infinite worth of, a li- of the living God Just like Naomi's response to the sacrificial love of Ruth was a recognition of her remarkable worth despite them facing no children, no heirs at the time. The book of Ruth is about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. An extraordinary sacrifice that comes at the hand of God in order to redeem a people so that they can see his worth. So in a few moments we're gonna be worshiping. One of the ways we worship here at Risen Hope is through the act of communion, the memorial of communion, where we remember this sacrifice that secured for us an ability to see and enjoy the worth of God, which this passage tells us is rest, true rest through the resurrection. And it's what purchased for us the path of life, a pathway into the presence of God forever. So if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I will invite you to participate in this sacrament. And I don't want you as you're, as you're doing that just to remember the cost. The cost is huge. I want you to remember that it doesn't stop with the cost. 1 Corinthians 11 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, the first thing he's going to do is raise us to life. Paul is referring to the day where we will no longer celebrate communion anymore. That's not going to happen forever. Because one day, with fully resurrected bodies, we will be eating and drinking at the same table as Jesus where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What Ephesians 2 often calls immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, immeasurable riches. You can't measure them. It's almost as though Paul's saying, don't try. That's what rest is ultimately for us. That's what resurrection gains us. That for eternity, you and I will play audience to the showcasing of God's unparalleled, unequaled grace in Christ Jesus toward us. The infinite worth and infinite value of God in Christ will be tasted by us and enjoyed by us forever. And communion is a means for us to experience some of that right now. And this is the purpose of the cross. If we get one thing from the book of Ruth, this is what I want it to be. This is the purpose of the cross, not only to achieve our salvation, but to be the very joy and pleasure that defines our salvation, which we can, in Christ Jesus, begin to experience right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your your worth and the worth of your Son is everything that I've said it is today. Me saying the word infinite next to it is remarkably an understatement. You are beyond any kind of language that we fallen creatures can pull together to talk about you. Which means that the magnitude of grace in you, not only loving us and providing us a day like this where the sky is blue and the sun is out, not only giving us a trillion graces in our lives through every common grace and every blessing from your hand, But despite all of those things and in the face of our desire to do whatever is right in our own eyes, you look down into the darkness of our hearts and our souls and you said, I'm going to send my son, my only son, and he's going to die for them. He's going to give his life for them so that they can see the pathway into my presence so that they can trust and believe in his name and experience joy at its fullness, whatever that means, and pleasures without an expiration date. Father, what an incredible reality. If we could just, even now as we worship, feel just a glimpse of that. If you would be so gracious as to press just a small fraction of it on our souls, that would be enough. That would be more than enough. And so I'm asking that you do that, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.